Good morning, church. Good morning. Uh, if you guys don't mind, go ahead and start turning in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Uh, in case you don't know me, I'm JJ, as it, it's been said a few times now. Um, I'm one of the family members here at the Hill. Thankful for the opportunity just to preach to you this morning and to share the word and, and what the Lord's been showing me through it. So let's, let's do that. Acts chapter 9. Over the past several months, as a church, we've been going through the book of Acts. Um, If we think back about what Acts is really focusing on, what the whole purpose of it is, big picture, we're seeing that God has saved through Jesus and that he's taking that message of salvation to the world through his people. In Acts 1.8, we see that Jesus tells his, his disciples that He wants them to be witnesses of his resurrection, not just wherever they are at the moment, but he wants them to take it to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the world, uh, ends of the earth. And he wants them to make disciples as they go. The rest of Acts is really just the reality of what that looks like. So far, we've seen a lot of good things. We've seen the Holy Spirit come down and indwell his people. We've seen thousands and thousands of people be saved. We've We've seen the church be birthed in unity and love and centered around the gospel. But even with all the good things, we've seen the bad as well. Last week, Jimmy preached about this great persecution that had broken out in Jerusalem. And that that persecution had directly followed from another bad thing, the stoning of a brother named Stephen. And while even this bad persecution led to even more, being, more people being saved... We heard last week, as Jimmy preached that, that the disciples went evangelizing as they went. We know that even that was happening contrary to the work of a man named Saul. This man, Saul, is the focus of our portion of Scripture today, so that's why I gave you this background. But last week, last week we saw at the beginning of chapter 8 that both Saul approved of the stoning of Stephen, that he was there that day, and that Saul himself was the one ravaging the church of Jesus. He was entering homes and he was dragging Christ followers out to prison. Up to this point in the book of Acts, Saul has become the most notable enemy of the gospel and of the church. But today, what we will find from the scriptures is that there's no enemy so far off that God can't save and transform by his grace. I'll say it again for you note takers. There's no enemy so far off that God can't save and transform by his grace. We're going to break up the scripture into three different sections uh, based on what's going on. And and so verses 1 through 9, we'll see Saul persecutes persecutes Christ. Uh, Verses 10 through 19, we'll see that Saul joins Christ. And then uh, verses 20 through 31, we'll see that Saul proclaims Christ. And in case it wasn't clear, we're going to be basically reading the testimony of Saul, who is later known as the Apostle Paul. His testimony is so powerful and it's so important for us today that it's recorded in several different places in Scripture. We're going to talk about a few of those, um, but just so you have it for your notes, Acts 9 here is where we're going to be. Acts 22 and Acts 26 are just a few that explicitly tell this one story. 
for Saul, we'll see that though he was a great persecutor, though he was a great enemy of the church, he would become one of its key members. This Saul would trade in his own self-righteousness for the righteousness found in Jesus. And he would go on to preach the gospel of Christ in faraway places. He would start churches. He would write about half of our New Testament. And he would even die for the gospel of Christ. Before we jump into our text to witness this change in Saul, let's pray. Father, God, we thank you for the great grace that you have shown us in Jesus. We thank you, God, that this morning we get to read of the testimony of a brother named Saul. God, that you took a man so far off and you brought him so near. God, I pray that as we spend time in your word this morning, Lord, that you would allow our hearts to see the truth of what you're saying. Lord, be with me as I preach. Help me and guard my words that I say only what is here. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Oh, that's singing. I lost my voice, so it's a good time to lose it. Uh, If you'll turn your eyes with me back to the beginning of chapter 9. As I said earlier, we're going to start this section as Saul persecutes Christ, verses 1 through 9. So because we have a lot to cover today, I'm not going to read it all up front. As we move along, we're going to just read. So um, have your Bible handy just to make sure that what I'm saying is what's actually there. So verses 1 and 2, we see. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. I want you guys to notice here how this chapter starts. That it starts with two words, but Saul. Chapter 8 ended with this great, momentum of God's people evangelizing, seeing salvation in populous places and even in the desert. Even when being persecuted, the gospel and the church had momentum. But despite this, Luke writes here in chapter 9, but Saul, at the news that the gospel had spread even all the way to Damascus, Saul Saul sought to snuff it out. Rather ambitiously, Saul decided that he would continue his persecution against the church in Damascus by binding and carrying off any followers of what was called the way, known as the way of Christ. He would carry them all the way to Jerusalem. It's interesting to note that this travel from Damascus to Jerusalem was a six-day travel. So the particular desire of Saul to travel six days from Jerusalem to Damascus to make these arrests bind these people, take them from their families, and then to travel six days back to Jerusalem. It really begins to show us the condition of his heart. And verse 1 shows us even more as it says that he was breathing threats and murder. This was his true desire. He did not merely want to arrest Christ's followers. He wanted to threaten them. He wanted to make them fear for their lives, knowing that he was willing to bring death upon any one of them. And he was zealous in this work without question. He was a great enemy of Christians in those days. But as we read on, we see that one cannot be an enemy of the church without also being an enemy of the Lord Jesus. 
Let's look at verses 3 through 9. Verse 3 says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. They led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. As Saul is on his way to do all that his heart has set out to do, Jesus himself stops him and confronts him. This great persecutor, Jesus, stopped in his tracks, and he reveals that the one who he's really persecuting is not just these Christians. It is himself. It's important that we don't miss what Jesus is saying here. Jesus Christ identifies with his church as one. Jesus does not ask Saul why he's persecuting this group of people. He does not ask Saul why he's persecuting even my people. He says, why are you persecuting me? He shows a special solidarity with us since we are bound to him in the gospel. And so we can be confident that so long as we are truly in Christ, no matter where we are, no matter what circumstance we're in, we're united to him. He claims us. Before the Father, before man, before the devil himself, he claims us. Everywhere and always he claims us. A few years ago, I had some cousins here uh, visiting in San Diego, and they had some small children, and we spent a day at the beach. Uh, after spending the day at the beach, we, we decided it was time to go, so we went to wash off our feet and the sands and everything at the showers. And while we were waiting for some open showers, my cousin looked over to find her toddler down on his knees, licking up the water from the showers. And jokingly, in that moment, none of us wanted to claim him. His mom even said something to the other adults to the effect of, whose kid is that? And I'll say all that to say, Christ will always claim us. In our highs and in our lows, he will always claim us and be with us and associate with us. And he'll do it unashamedly. Let that truth rest in your soul this morning, church. Don't believe that you are alone. Don't, be, don't believe the lie that you're not seen or that your struggles and pain and heartache are somehow invisible to him. He claims you. He's united with you. You're never alone. As we look back again and consider Jesus confronting Saul in his sin, ironically, we're going to find that the way that Jesus opens his eyes to his sin is by first blinding his eyes. We read of the bright light that shone from heaven. And if we look to Acts 22, verse 6, we find that that all happened at about noonday and that this light was shining brighter than the noonday sun. And it was shining from the very glory of Christ. There was likely a thought in Saul's mind that this blindness was a punishment, some sort of punishment for his sin, in fact. This was a common thought of the time that ailments like blindness and deafness were the results of sin. They were the results of a man or even uh, a man's sin or even the, the sin of his parents. You can read even 
as the disciples thought this in John chapter 9. Jesus is approaching a man who's born blind, and they ask, Who's Whose sin is it that caused him to be blind? And in John chapter 9, verse 3, we see that Jesus responds, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. The same will prove to be true for Saul's blindness. Though God had blinded Saul, we see that instead of punishment, this blindness will turn out to be a gracious response to Saul's sin, so that the work of God and his salvation may take place. Where Saul had been blind spiritually, he was now blind physically, allowing him the time and ability to stop and really consider his place before the very Lord he had been persecuting. He had time to contemplate the appearance of Christ. He had time to contemplate his own life, his own actions. And he had time to contemplate the word of God that spoke of this Messiah that he had somehow missed. And in his blindness, he had no other option but to obey Christ, understanding that the help that he needed was going to have to come from outside of him. Only God could heal his blindness, both physically and spiritually. So we see that Saul obeyed Jesus. In verse 6, Jesus said, rise and enter the city. And that's what we see Paul, Paul, Saul, the same guy. But that's what we see Saul do in verse 8 with the help of his escorts. And his escorts, we see, they, they witness this whole thing, but in their own sort of way. In verse 7, it tells us that uh, these escorts had seen the great light from heaven. It tells us that they even heard the voice. But Acts 22, 9 tells us that they did not understand the words spoken to Saul. But what they would take away from this occurrence was that their zealous leader, Saul, would be entering Damascus in a much more humble way than he had previously anticipated. Instead of entering the city with authority and vigor, he enters the city blind and weak and powerless. And instead of seeing Saul so sure of his own righteousness before God, they would see him not eating or drinking for the entirety of his blindness, likely convicted of of his sin that had been laid bare before him. And instead of seeing Saul dragging off Christians, they would see Saul engage with Christians, starting with a man named Ananias. As we continue reading our passage, we're we're going to see from verses 10 through 19 that Saul joins Christ. So let's read verses 10 through 19. It says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show, you, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house 
And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. While the blind saw is keeping himself from food and drink, we see that he is not sitting alone in silence. Verse 11 showed us that Saul's conviction and his newfound desire to obey Jesus has turned him to prayer as he's waiting his next instruction. And in Saul's prayers, we find that God is giving him visions of this man named Ananias. And there's not much that we really know about Ananias. Verse 10 tells us just about all we have, that He's a disciple of Christ. He lives in Damascus. But I don't want us to miss either that even though there's nothing special mentioned about him, when we see Ananias, what we see is a willingness and a readiness to obey Jesus. We see this in verse 10 as he responds to the Lord's call. When Jesus calls his name, Ananias is ready to say, Here I am, Lord, as if to say, What do you need? I'm I'm your man. Ananias knew his shepherd's voice, and he was ready at the call of that shepherd. But what if his shepherd's call was going to lead him to the valleys of the shadows of death? Would he still be willing to obey his master? What we find in Jesus' request of Ananias seems to be of that thought. See, in verse 11, Jesus tells him to go to Saul of Tarsus, of all people, and of all things to lay hands on him. Last week, Jimmy, Pastor Jimmy said that Saul was like a modern-day religious terrorist. So by saying to Ananias that, so by saying to go to Saul, Jesus may as well have been telling Ananias to go to the very leader of ISIS itself and to pray for him in Jesus' name. Let's look again at what Ananias says in response, verse 13 and 14. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So without question, Ananias hears Jesus say, go lay hands on this man, and is himself wondering, am I going to be the one who has hands laid on? He knows why Saul has come to Damascus, and surely Jesus did. So he raises this concern to Jesus, and for the first time in Acts, we see the plan that Jesus has for this man, Saul. If you look again with me to verse 15, we see that Jesus calls Saul a what? A a chosen instrument to do what? To carry my name, the name of Jesus? To carry it where? Before the Gentiles, before the kings and children of Israel? See, this is why Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, saw this event as singularly important in the story of God taking his gospel to the nations. In the chapters leading up to this, we've seen the salvation of those in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And if we remember the places in Acts 1-8 that we said at the beginning of all this, there's one place missing in that list. It's Judea or Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. This man, Saul, this great persecutor of both Christ and his people, is the one who God has decided will lead 
the charge in taking the message of salvation far and wide, even to the Gentiles. But it will not be easy. See, Jesus foreshadows this life of Saul being one of suffering just as his own life had been. This Saul, the one who once afflicted the pain, he would become the recipient of it. Ananias, hearing these words of Jesus, he goes. And we see that upon arrival, he did not, do, or he did not just hear the words of Christ. He believed the words of Christ. Look with me again at verse 17, just the first two words that he says to Saul. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, him being Saul, he said, Brother Saul. Ananias believed Jesus that Saul was a part of the family of faith, and so he greeted him as such. He called him brother. After all that Saul had done, Imagine all the things that could have been said. Yet in Christ we see unity. In Christ we see forgiveness. In Christ we see family. We we see love that covers a multitude of sins. And as Ananias lays his hands on him, we see that Saul regains his sight. As the scales fall off, Saul can now truly see And seeing his sin rightly, and seeing Christ, he has believed. Saul now believes that Jesus was the Son of God. Saul now believed that Jesus died on the cross for his sins to be forgiven. No matter how many they were, no matter how heavy they may have been. And Saul now believed that Jesus rose from the dead. And he promised eternal life for his people. And desiring to publicly proclaim his faith in association with Jesus, his first action after regaining his sight is to be baptized. He wants to join himself with both Christ and his people. And this is a big public statement considering his track record. But it was the very next logical step. And it's written here even before saying that he, again, ate. It was that serious. It was that important. Because he now saw the great grace of God that had been given to him. You see, Saul didn't deserve to be saved. He was an enemy of Jesus. He hated Christians. He threatened them. He killed them. He imprisoned them. He drugged them out of their houses. He destroyed families. And he has done so much evil. But do you see, church, that there, even there, Jesus came for him. Even there, Jesus was willing to forgive and to cover and to cleanse his sin. Even there, the blood of Jesus was potent enough to wash it all away better than any cleanser you've ever seen. There's no Savior like Jesus. There's none so loving, so kind, so merciful. Jesus was willing and able and desiring to forgive even the worst of Saul's sins. And church, the same is true for you today, each one of you. But before you and I can take part in this forgiveness, we must first see our sin as, as Paul did, as Saul did. As humans who sin, you and I disobey, and we go against the good order that God has laid out for us. Whether we sin deliberately or unintentionally, 
It's us choosing our way over what God has said is best. It's us placing ourselves on the throne of our hearts rather than the rightful King Jesus. Our sin before God makes us his enemies. It leaves us with a debt to be paid. Our sin leaves us guilty before God. But Saul would later write these words to encourage the church in Romans 5. In verses 8 through 10 in Romans 5, it says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? See, where we were sinners, Christ died for us. He died in our place. He died as our payment. Where we were guilty, Christ justified us and cleansed us, clearing our names before the Father. And where we were enemies, Christ reconciled us, bringing us into the family of God. There's no stone unturned with this Savior. He leaves no barriers between you and I and salvation. There's no sin that you have committed that would turn him away. So then if you have not yet trusted your life to Jesus, the question I ask to you today is this. Will you trust him? What more must be done for you before you surrender to Jesus? What has he left to accomplish If you've not yet given your life to Jesus, if you've not yet fully surrendered your heart to him, let today be the day that that changes. Don't leave today the same way that you came in these doors. Turn to him. Find forgiveness, just as Saul did. And for those of you who have already surrendered your life to Christ, let this be a reminder to you that there is no one so dirty that they can't be cleaned. No politician, no crook, no thief. He's too far gone. He's too far removed from the the grace of God. Continue to pray for those who seem far off. As we heard the past few weeks, Stephen prayed for his murderers to find forgiveness, even as they were killing him. And Saul was in the mob that day. Saul's conversion is Stephen's answered prayer. So fight against believing the lie that some people are just too far. Continue to pray for the salvation of the lost people around you, whether it's in your family or your friends. And remind yourselves that sin, that even you find in yourself, that you find the greatest shame over, has already been nailed to the cross. It's already been forgiven. As we look to our last section of text in verses uh, 20 through 31, What we're going to begin to see is how this great news of grace transforms Saul's life. And I have put it under the header that Saul proclaims Christ. So let's start by reading just verses 20 through 21. Verse 20, chapter 9 says, And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed. And said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? 
And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? Following Saul's conversion and baptism, it says immediately, he publicly proclaimed Jesus as the Son of God when he was offered the chance. Here, he was offered the the opportunity to, to teach in the synagogue in Damascus. And as one would expect, just as we should be, there, there was great amazement. Everyone was amazed all around at the significant life change that had taken place. See, Ananias wasn't the only one familiar with Saul and his reason for coming to Damascus. They repeat it here in verse 21. They're well aware. They knew his original agenda. But Saul's lingering past did not stop him from moving forward with what mattered. If we look at verse 22, we see that it says, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Saul's life was now about making Jesus known, and he was very gifted at it. Saul argued that Jesus was risen, and he was able to use the word of God the law and the prophets of the Old Testament that he had at the time to prove out faith in Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior. For believers in Jesus, this is an encouragement. This is, this is an encouraging thing to know that the entire Bible is telling a linear story of a great Savior to come. And his name is Jesus. As we see in verses 23 and 24, these elite religious leaders were not so encouraged. In fact, they were less enthusiastic. Let's read verses 23 through 25. It says, When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. As they considered the words of Saul and the great testimony of Saul, They decided enough was enough. Though Saul was on their team not long before this, they decided that they would now need to kill him just to keep their power, their status, their following. So as they plotted, the Lord protected. Verse 25 describes for us how the family of God took care of Saul, protecting his life by lowering him in a basket out of the city undetected. How beautiful is it that the ones who Saul once sought to destroy, the ones who he would have led out of this city a different way had not Christ met him, they were now protecting him. Leaving the city, Saul went back to Jerusalem, a new man. Let's read verses 26 through 30 together. Verse 26 says, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to him how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in, so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and then and sent him off to Tarsus. 
As Saul makes it to Jerusalem, it appears that the news of his conversion had spread just a little slower than the news of his persecution. So when Saul sought to join the church in Jerusalem, we see that he had a few issues. His salvation was so miraculous that even the church had a hard time believing it and instead found it easier to believe that he was a spy rather than a Christian. Thankfully, we see that the disciple called Barnabas, who we heard earlier in chapter Acts, had done some some, uh, notable things. He vouches for Saul. In making a way for him, he was able to come in and out in fellowship with the people. And it says, verse 27, he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Now, I want to mention to you that this is the second time in eight verses that we see Saul preaching that Jesus is the Christ. The preaching of Christ had now become his mission, his life goal. Where he once had zeal for persecuting Christians, and shutting their mouths from speaking this very name, he now had the zeal for making Christ known to anyone who would listen. And where he once sought to imprison and murder, he now sought to set free and give life through the sharing of the message of the gospel. Saul's life upon meeting and believing in Christ had radically changed. And it is for this reason that Saul would later write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. For each one of us, just like Saul, if we are in Christ, we are new creatures. The old former self has died and has passed away, and the new has come. The new living self given to us by Christ. And the evidence of this transformation in Saul's life was fairly obvious. But we should see see similarly visible attributes in our own lives if we are following Jesus. When we follow Christ, we're transformed by the Holy Spirit from the inside out. We gain similar desires as Paul had here. We see a desire to obey Jesus. We see a desire to proclaim him as Savior and Lord. We desire to read the word of God, to know this Savior, to know this God who would save us. And we desire to have fellowship with his people. If you're sitting here looking over your life and that just doesn't sound like you, I want to encourage you to wrestle with that. If you don't desire to read the Bible, if you don't desire to worship Jesus, if you don't desire to tell people about him, there's a good chance that you likely don't know the true Jesus of the Bible personally. You may not be persecuting the church like Saul was, but in your own way, you are likely blinded by your sin. See today that Jesus, he loves you. He's extending his hand to you again. He wants you to know him. He wants to give you forgiveness and grace and transformation, just like he did Saul. See your sin and turn from it today. And trust that Jesus will save you, and I promise you, he will. And Christian, Christ has saved you. Don't be afraid to preach him boldly, especially to those who knew your life before. That's what Saul did. And God has saved you and transformed you for that very purpose. As we look back to the text, we see in verse 29 that Saul spoke and disputed 
with the Greek-speaking Jews. Saul was able to do this because he himself was a Greek-speaking Jew. This was a group of people that Saul was once heavily acquainted with. They knew his life. They knew his story. As people he likely had spent much time around. But just as it had in Damascus, it seems that Saul's preaching had caused issues with them as well. The Hellenists, as they're named, after debating with Paul on the topic of Jesus, had decided that they too were going to try and kill him. They too had had enough. So again, we see Saul's old squad now seeking to take his life. seeking, uh, And we see the very people that, that Saul had once persecuted again, protecting him, saving his life. And all of this is happening because God transformed Saul from persecuting to preaching. And he had, he had done this in a way that did not only affect Saul. If you look at with me to verse 31, our last verse of our passage. We'll see it says, So the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. You see, having the greatest persecutor of the church become a Christian, become a Christian had a, a domino effect, a massive one where the momentum of the church at the beginning of this chapter was being threatened Saul's, because of Saul's persecution, we see here that the momentum had picked right back up at his salvation. Seeing Saul transformed, the church had peace, it says. And they had peace knowing that God was in control, that his grace reigned supreme. The church was being built up, it says, as they continued to boldly proclaim Christ as Lord and Savior. The church was walking in the fear of the Lord rather than the fear of man. They were finding comfort from the Holy Spirit even as they were continuing to be persecuted. And with all of this in hand, the gospel continued to spread and take root. The church multiplied, it says, and it did so because there is no enemy so far off that God can't save and transformed by his grace. So church, see, see that you too were once enemies. See that just like Saul, we were in need of grace. And see that Christ laid his life down for you, even though we didn't deserve it. Let's now live to make much of his name. Let's pray and let's preach and let's proclaim Christ now so that others may find forgiveness in him just as we have. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you for the life of Saul. Lord, we thank you that you took a man who hated you and your people, who denied you. God, we thank you that you turned his life upside down before you turned the world upside down with him. God, we thank you that you've made him the poster child of grace for us to, to be able to understand just how far you're willing to go. Just how much you're willing to save. God, we thank you that the answer to that question is that there's no limit. Lord, that you will save to the uttermost. Lord, I pray that today you would help our hearts to believe for our own sin that you have forgiven it if we trust in you. 
Lord, let our time, the rest of the service be sweet as we consider this and think on this. Lord, help us to, to live believing the truths of your scripture this morning. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.